He makes the point that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were probably written anonymously and not by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and probably because from his perspective, these guys were illiterate. That's exactly right. He says basically that in the early 2nd century that uh, they started putting names on these manuscripts, and they chose Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as people to make them seem like or to sound authoritative. Now, there's three reasons uh, that, that why this simply is, is not un, it's, it's untenable. It doesn't work to make this claim. Number one is, first off, you would not choose these names as the ones to put on these. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not the most famous people in the New Testament. Matthew was a former tax collector. That's one strike against him right there. Mark and Luke are secondary characters. John would be the only one that you would put in as somebody that you would think that if you were just choosing a name to make a gospel sound or to seem authoritative, you might put on John's name. So in the first place, if that was what had happened, they would not have chosen these names as the ones they put on the text. Secondly, it's clear that they were not illiterate, not all of them anyway. If you go through the Oxyrhynchus papyri, which are uh, a group of papyri, uh, the documents from the ancient world that have been found in Egypt, if you go through those, you found literally hundreds, perhaps thousands of documents written by tax collectors, sometimes in multiple languages. It's clear that Matthew, for example, clearly knew how to write. He was a literate person. The others, even if they were illiterate, scribes were readily available in the ancient world to take what somebody told them and to turn that into a good document. But the third point is really the main one. By the early second century, all over the ancient world, you had the Gospels had circulated all over the ancient world. By the very time that Bart Ehrman claims that they just made up names and put on them, the Gospels had circulated all over the ancient world. We know that because there's a papyrus called the John Rillens Papyrus, or Papyrus 52, a fragment of John, which comes from the early 2nd century, perhaps the late 1st century, that has been found in Egypt. It's made it all the way down to Egypt by that time. And so he's expecting us to believe that when they start adding names to these manuscripts, that suddenly, somehow, all of them, all over the ancient world, they all, all the churches, add Matthew to the gospel that we know as Matthew, add Mark to the gospel we know as Mark, and so on, which would have to be the case because every gospel, every fragment of a gospel that has a name of the gospel of Matthew, for example, has Matthew as the author. Everyone that has a name that's a fragment of Mark has Mark as the author, all of that. So what he would expect us to believe is that somehow all over the ancient world these documents have been copied, and somehow they suddenly come up with the same names at the same time which is absolutely impossible. Anyone would, would recognize that. Now, what I think happened, what I think it makes a lot more sense, is that when these documents circulated from one church to another church to another church, that what they did is that they told where that gospel came from. Hey, this gospel came from Matthew. He followed Jesus. This gospel came from Mark, who was a companion of Simon Peter. This gospel came from Luke, and he traveled with Paul and gathered this information. This gospel came from John, who was a follower uh, of Jesus Christ. And we have have evidence that that is, in fact, what occurred. The oral traditions connected these to the apostles and to the authors of them very, very early. A guy named Papias, 100 A.D., he clearly states that Matthew and Mark uh, were written by the authors to whom we ascribe them, and not only that, that Mark was giving the eyewitness testimony that comes directly from Simon Peter. We have the testimony of Polycarp, passed on through a guy named Irenaeus. Polycarp was born in 70 A.D., and the lifetimes of the eyewitnesses, and he gives us the story of 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how those four Gospels came about. There's a fragment called the Muratorian Fragment, a little fragment that lists the books of the New Testament from about 160 A.D., and that lists also Luke and John and gives the stories behind them. We have evidences all over that reconnect these Gospels to the authors that we know them as, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and these are very early attested all the way back to the turn of the century from the 1st to the 2nd century, the time that Bart Ehrman claims that they started just making up titles in the early 2nd century. Well, let's talk for just a moment about the fact that today, if we're making copies of, uh, let's say, your book, we have all the advantages. We have eyeglasses. We have lamps. We've got great materials to write with. But you yourself acknowledge that the Bible was written in a culture where the writing materials were rough pieces of papyrus. They were using quills. The ink was a mixture of charcoal or water or ground gum. They didn't have the eyeglasses or the contact lenses, and they didn't have lamps. They had candles. So in that kind of a situation where you're copying the New Testament, how can the manuscripts possibly be accurate? That's a great question, and it's one that many people ask. And number one, I think we have to recognize that, um, and I don't think that we can appeal to this alone, but there is the fact that I think that the Holy Spirit was operative in this. I'll say that right off the bat, in preserving it as adequately as it is. But even with just looking at the ways that they copied things in the ancient world, these persons in the ancient world, those that copied, were very schooled in memorizing oral traditions, memorizing oral histories, being able to copy accurately generation after generation. And not only that, the early Christians were so concerned to make certain that the Bible was preserved adequately, and I think that really is the crucial point there. They were so concerned with that. We find that in, for example, Origen, uh, Origen of Alexandria, early uh, 3rd century, and he complains at this point. He, there's an outburst in one of his commentaries. And he says, ah, oh, there's so many changes that have been introduced into the manuscripts, and yet if you look at the manuscripts that Origen was using, they are far more than 95% shared the exact same content, and yet he considered that to be an area of frustration with the text that he had because there had been different manuscript variants in them. The Christians, those early Christians, they wanted that text to be 100% conserved from one generation to the other, and they worked very hard to make sure that that happened. One of the great discoveries, the Dead Sea Scrolls, predate the earliest extant text, the Masoretic text, by a thousand years. And if you compare the two, you find that there are differences in style and spelling, but really no differences in substance. There are no substantive differences there. Sure, there are some of the some manuscripts variants at different places, but none of those, once again, just as with the New Testament, affects anything that we believe about God, doesn't change any doctrine, doesn't change any of what we confess that the text to tell us, none whatsoever. Help me with something. This may go beyond what we're really capable of doing, but it seems to me that the scholarship that you're alluding to has to be available to someone like Bart Ehrman. How does he continue making basic mistakes as he does in his book, Misquoting Jesus? I think that the, the mistakes that he makes are, are not so much ones of the facts he presents. Most of the times his facts are correct, but it's the conclusions that he draws from those, that he infers out of those, 
And uh, he takes those to a, a paradigm that he has set up, for example, to do with inspiration and preservation. If God didn't really preserve it perfectly, therefore it wasn't originally inspired. Well, that's not a, a logical conclusion from the evidence that we have. I think also there's just some things that are left out. For example, the fact that, yes, there are 200,000 to 400,000 manuscript variants, but something like 99% or more of those variants aren't even noticeable in your biblical text. They're noticeable. They don't affect anything of what we believe about Jesus Christ. And so, yes, we're operating with the same evidence, and yet uh, there are times when the inferences brought from that evidence just don't fit that aren't logically uh, following from the evidence that's there. I want to go to the phone lines. We'll talk to Donna listening on KPRZ in San Diego, California. You're on with my guest, Dr. Timothy Paul Jones. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. Praise the Lord. And I, I'm thankful that you two are being faithful the way you are in your work. My question deals with um, Westcott and Hort's work in the 19th century and uh, their, um, I don't know whether it's a contribution or detriment to the translation of the Greek New Testament because of the materials they translated it from. And part two is when I go see the Dead Sea Scrolls here in San Diego, um, what, what particular thing should I look for, would you look for, I would say first off to do with Westcott and Hort, um, just to give a little bit of background on them. They were a couple of scholars in the 19th century who created a Greek New Testament that relied almost exclusively, I believe exclusively, on Alexandrian or Egyptian texts. Uh, before that time, most persons had relied on Byzantine texts, which were come from the area that we would know as Turkey and those areas around there. So there were a lot of parts that, that were changed or appeared to be changed in Westcott and Hort's edition. Honestly, what they did was primarily an overreaction against the uh, hundreds of years of only having used the other uh, New Testament texts. What I emphasize with people that's most important is the high degree of agreement between all those texts. Even when all these different text families are factored in together, there is a vast degree of agreement, and again, there are no crucial doctrines about Jesus Christ that are affected by the changes, even from one text family, uh, one grouping of texts, Greek texts, to another. Uh, to do with the Dead Sea Scrolls, to be perfectly honest, when I go and look at something like that, um, I, I would like to give some great scholarly answer, but what I do is I stand there and I simply imagine and just think through that original writing of that text, and, and I just rejoice in having been able to stand so close and to see these texts that were preserved for so long that demonstrate such accuracy of God's Word and simply rejoice in that and, and spend time in prayer and meditation. I would, uh, maybe I should give some great scholarly answer to look for, but that's honestly what I do. We are talking to Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, the book Misquoting Truth, a guide to the fallacies of Bart Ehrman's Misquoting Jesus. The book is available right now. You don't want to miss it. It's a great read. You can read it in an hour, hour and a half, but the truths in it will transform your life and make you a much more effective witness. 